Hello, listeners, and welcome to Shattering Superstructure, a podcast that breaks through the majority opinion and mainstream culture. I'm your host, Alex Arabian, a journalist who explores the value of art for the sake of art. In these interviews, in which I'll have occasional co-hosts, there will be no scoops, no juicy bits, and no hidden agendas, just a safe space in which one can think as one wishes and say what one thinks. And on that note, let's get to the episode. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Shattering Superstructure, ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary people. On this episode, we have David Arquette and Jeff Marslett, two extremely talented artists. Jeff's latest film, Quantum Cowboys, stars David Arquette, along with some other big names like Lily Gladstone. And it's a unique film that's showing at SF Indie Fest at the Roxy Theater on the 6th. So if you're in town in San Francisco, get tickets to that. Um, in this episode, we discuss many things not just quantum cowboys. We discuss the multiverse theory. We discuss, of course, David's uh, legendary uh, filmography, uh, including his role as Dewey in the Scream franchise and that death that happened in Scream 5 and possible ways that David Arquette can reprise his role as Dewey in an upcoming Scream sequel. You'll hear about David's unique pitch to Matt and Tyler, who have taken over the reins of the Scream franchise. We also discuss whether or not David would be willing to return and I'll give you a hint. He gave me an emphatic yes um, in any capacity. He'd love to return to the franchise. Um, we also talk about uh, ketamine treatment, which is relatively new in the mainstream. Um, an extremely effective treatment for so many who struggle with depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, um, and anyone Um who's going through a mental health issue. Uh, it, there was a scene of a ketamine infusion treatment in David's documentary, You Cannot Kill David Arquette. Uh, we discuss uh, what it was like including that scene and sharing that vulnerable side of, of his life to the public and how it destigmatizes these types of, 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 of mental health issues that, that people tend to grow tepid uh, when it's talked about in the public. But really, um, the goal there was to do that very thing, um, try and destigmatize mental health issues and the various treatments that are available. Without further ado, here's the episode. Thanks for listening. First of all, 
uh, incredible film. That was uh, really something special, I, I thought. Thank you. Uh, I, Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like not everyone's going to love the film, but at the very least, um, it's a film that people haven't seen before. So if someone's looking to see something new, uh, we we definitely delivered on that. So. Yeah, and, and animation opens so many more narrative doors, I feel like, right? Yeah, we would have never been able to make this film. I mean, we would have made we could have made something with that script, but it would not have it would not have been this film without animation. You know, part of the the goal of the structure was to give people a multi-universe, a multi-worlds film where we didn't have you watch the characters go into multiple universes, but tried instead to take the audience and make them watch one consistent character narrative from different universes. And I think without being able to change the medium in the way that animation let us do, you couldn't build that type of structure. Right. Yeah. The, I, I, I loved how it was done and you've got 12 different animation styles. Yeah. I always, I, when people ask me, I either say 12 or 15, the, <laughs> Each animation style represents a different uh, character's point of view or a different instance of a character's point of view. And there are 15 different ones, but really three of those are types of rotoscoping. So 12 types of animation, one of them has three subtypes. Uh, if, the, if this was a textbook quiz, it would look something like that. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, you've worked on some some great shorts, but I think this is your sophomore narrative directorial. It's actually uh, my third. It's my third, third directorial. Okay. So there was Mars and then Loves Her Gun and then okay. this one. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, what was the impetus of this project? I know you wanted to tell, uh, you know, kind of a multiverse story, but there's a lot of blending genres. <laughs> there, there is a lot. Um, you know, um, I, as I get older, I sometimes think maybe I should rethink this strategy, but, you know, I enjoy making films because I like making something that I haven't already seen, making something maybe no one else is is trying to do, maybe no one else even wants to do, um, that, you know, that's a different path than sometimes a Hollywood film where you're working pretty hard to refine and prove um, sort of tried and true narratives most of the time, because they are great to watch. I mean, I love watching more expensive Hollywood films as well, but indie film suffers from the lack of resources and support sometimes, but the gain that you get is a freedom to tell different kinds of stories. So in this case, the different kind of story I was really interested in, in looking at was twofold. One was I'd been a physicist before I was a filmmaker and I got a little, I'd say a little frustrated watching, they're great, but watching even, you know, it's gonna win all the Academy Awards, but even watching everything ever all at once, watching a Doctor Strange, the presentation of multiverse theory there is just that everything is possible and you can have an infinite number of characters. So there are kind of no rules in your storytelling. I totally love the appeal of that. I see why that's done, but it's very far from what Wheeler and Everett originally wrote as the multi-worlds theory. You know, that, that the idea of the multi-worlds theory has a lot more to do with like Heisenberg uncertainty and the possibility of these things existing and them extinguishing other, other possibilities. So um, this was my attempt to say, hey, cinema is actually a really cool medium to show an abstract concept, like the real concept of many worlds. So that was part of the impetus. And then the other thing is, I love Westerns. I grew up in the West. And there was definitely a side of this story when Hal and I were writing the original original ideas down to re-envision the Western, to say 
that Western tropes, Western cliches, awesome Western movies have honestly replaced actual history for most of the worlds. Most of the world sees a guy from California in the deserts of Southern Spain with guns listening to Italian music. And that's what they think the American West was, you know, because that's what we've seen. And the American West was far more diverse. It was far more strange. It was far more built by the everyday people that weren't shooting each other than it was by the people that were shooting each other. The music didn't sound like Ennio Morricone as much as I love Ennio Morricone. It sounded like untuned banjos and broken instruments. And it, you know, sounded probably more like Sonic Youth than it sounded like Ennio Morricone. And I kind of wanted to present a world where we got to see that that version of the West. Um, and then I love working with really interesting actors and really interesting human beings uh, saying stuff we might not normally hear people say. Um, that, that's kind of where this came from. Like David, he got to say a lot of stuff that he probably wouldn't normally say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, David, what drew, what drew you to this, this project? Was it a lot of those elements? Yeah. I mean, Jeff had such a... Uh, this whole experience has been kind of like asking him for direction and understanding like where are we what's this world like still wrapping my head around it i love i love how thought-provoking it is and um and then it was an opportunity to work with frank mosley who we had this great like you know buddy thing going and and i love the western kind of world there's, there's something inside me that one of my ancestors must have experienced some of it so that it's in me like i don't know there's something i very feel uh, i feel very close to but in the same way they're always the ones that were probably joking around quite a bit back then <laughs> yeah. i have to give you a huge compliment david that um you always play characters with this wonderful approachable humor that just come through, you know, whether it's things like Dewey, that no matter how big or small the role is, you can't help but love that character. And I knew that was in you just from watching so much of your work. But when you came and did this, you also have this great, and maybe that is that some part of your ancestry in the West there, you have this great way of playing the grit that you brought to that character. So he is still gruff, a little scary, but you still kind of want to hug him there. You, you walk <laughs> that line of, of making him lovable without making him seem unthreatening. And I, I don't know. It was really good. I was really uh, impressed. Thank you, buddy. I thought it was fun with Frank that I could, he kind of was even sort of more um, unwound than me. You know, he's lost more marbles <laughs> and it was a fun <laughs> opportunity to be kind of, a little bit of the straight man in, in the situation or the hard ass and he's yeah. more of the goofball, which was fun. And also Lily's character in the film just is so awesome. She's just such the you know hero, Western yeah. heroes. It's such a beautiful message. I I love the performance. Yeah, and they come to her. I think when they first start watching the movie, they're waiting for uh, you know, uh, John's character or Kiowa's character to sort of be what Lily's character really is, you know, which everyone could be the most of a hero. And it's it's her who right. shows part way through. I, I always, I, I like that bait and switch on the audience and Lily, obviously. Um, I mean, the whole world, I think, is starting to recognize it, but she's such an amazing performer that she can wow. be that mix of Han Solo and Obi-Wan Kenobi at the same time that walks into this movie. And Amazing, yeah. yeah. That's a great comparison, yeah. She is. 
she is that mixture in this for sure. Um, and you know, it's, it's definitely a reflection of your range, Jeff. I mean, I think you, you filmed just about every genre, what Westerns, uh, sci-fi thrillers, a bit of horror, you know, enthralling drama. Yeah. <laughs> What's the film that got you in, into movies or maybe if, if there's a genre? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, like I said, I, Westerns. they're the ones that pulled me in just from a, a viewer and enjoyment. And I think the very first movie I saw at the theaters, I think I was three years old when Star Wars came out and I watched that and, and I loved the, the magic worlds. And that was just as a kid, those are the toys I loved everything. You know, I loved the good, the bad and the ugly, the, all of the, the Westerns from the late sixties, I really got addicted to as a young person, but from a making standpoint, um, I think it was somewhere in high school when I started going to the Inwood Theater in Dallas and watching um, indie films, you know, watching Slacker was a big influence on me. And part of why I started my career and went down to work in Austin, seeing Linkletter make this film that just didn't make sense in the context of other films. Um, David Byrne, who's only really directed one movie, is from The Talking Heads, but his movie yeah. uh, True Stories is probably one of the giant influences. Um, Jim Jarmusch. Um, you know, films like uh, Border Radio films, these films that in their own way defy narratives and to some degree defy classic three-act structure. I would argue they still very much have a three-act structure, but seeing people do something that Hal uh, uh, Hartley and all these films, uh, Al Sanders, these, the film might not work on every single level, but it asks so many questions that when it does stumble, it's at least super interesting stumbles. I think that's what made me that's I, I think as a person, I'm an interesting stumble. You know, that's what attracted me to making something. I want to go out and really swing for the fences on this and get it out there sometimes. And sometimes if I don't, at the very least, the not getting there is really something you might want to watch four or five times and figure out how it did or didn't work. And that attracted me to making movies. So that's kind of why I make the weird ones that I do make. The same thing that attracted me before the, the science, because science is a lot the same. Physics is, is missing and messing up a lot and grasping tiny bits of truth here and there. But when you do grasp that tiny bit of truth, it's sort of world changing within your little world. And I like that. Wow. That's so cool. I have a random question. But yeah. does, uh, is there a story structure like in the hero's journey, but it's constant build up, crash, build up, crash, build up, crash? <laughs> But yeah, like the the roller coaster model. I mean, I think is there uh, is there. One, I mean, I would. I would I'm argue, working on something now that it just yeah. seems like we keep like <laughs> burning. Like we like, try really hard. I, I mean, I think the trick is if, if you were to really take like the, the the classic textbook, it is. It's like, but what you try to do is say you build up and you burn, and the next time you build up a little higher and burn a little harder, <laughs> and then you do it again, you build a little harder until so you can do this until you mm -hmm. finally get to the last one and you figure out. Does my character learn anything from these five crashes? And then yeah. does that leave them here? Or do they learn nothing from it? And that leaves them further down than any of the previous <laughs> <Yeah>. crashes. <laughs> you know, those, are, those are the two directions you can drive the car. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, where where do you crash? Um, uh, which, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. I love that. Thank you for that. Sorry. It didn't mean to no, I want to read it now. I want to see I want to see where you're crashing on this one. So oh, God. It's pretty much the whole Bozo experience. It's just been this really fun, wild ride. But um, well, this uh, is another reason, like get, bringing David into this, you know, someone who, you know, 
you built a wrestling career. You built, <laughs> you know, a career acting. You're building a clowning career. Uh, oh. I feel like there's a little kindred spirit here in that David <sighs> tried stuff that, sure, if someone pulled out a notebook and said, you know, what should David Arquette do next with his career? No, no one wrote down Bozo the Clown. That wasn't that. Was <laughs> something was but you did it because, you know, because I'm someone, living, I'm yeah. living my own multiverse. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. And I mean, to that point, it's like, you know, I think on top of a lot of coming of age 80s films, David, I, I was, I grew up on, on, on Dewey and Scream, you know, Rob and uh, Never Been Kissed, yeah. <laughs> Gordy, Gordy and Ready to Rumble, you know, Chris <laughs> and Eight-Legged Freaks. I mean, you're a big <laughs> artistic you. inspiration for me. Wow, that's so nice. Thank you. Yeah. It's um, all fun. Of course. And then, you know, lately, you know, you're st you still got Bone Tomahawk Spree and uh, You Cannot Kill David Arquette, which is like one of the best documentaries I think Thanks, man. I've ever seen. It was incredible. Um, I so, appreciate that. Yeah, of course. I didn't get to see it until after we shot um, Quantum Cowboys, but then I got to watch the doc, David, and it is, it's one of the one of the best documentaries I've seen on why people do what they do. And it's, it is really great. So feel really Thank good. Thank you. Buddy. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and, and suffice it to say, I Dewey's death and, and scream five, it definitely made me cry. Um, you know, he's the underdog. He's the mm -hmm. every man. Uh, unabashedly vulnerable, kind, but he's gone through so many tragedies, but no matter how many tragedies he's been through, he keeps moving forward. And that's what I love about the character. He's so relatable. Um, so, I mean, yeah. What was your, when you read the script, I think Matt and Tyler mentioned that uh, you were open to the idea of Dewey dying, especially from a narrative standpoint. Uh, what were your initial reactions? They hadn't told me. So when I read it, I was like, at the beginning, I was reading, I was like, oh, Dewey's got a good role in this one. Because <laughs> you never know. Like, <laughs> and then I was like, oh, that's why. And I had to put the camera, the script out and be like, oh. But uh, I get it. Like, the emotionally kind of crushing the audience or whatever, you know, all that. I don't know. It was sad, though. It's hard seeing the new ones come out and not being a part of the. I don't know. You're just kind of not invited to the fan, the party. You know what I mean? It's just not like, oh, oh, well, wish you guys the best. I don't know how I'm going to be able to watch it. I'm going to be like, <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, as an no. audience member, I'm going to feel the same way. I'm like, wait a minute. Why am I watching this now? There's no more doing <laughs> No. <laughs> I hope it does well. But Good news I'm in sure it's Cowboys. Be wonderful. They're talented. Super talented. We did kill you, I mean, in, in Quantum Cowboys. But if we ever get to make the sequel, you're still actually one of the two leads in the, in the sequel. <laughs> Good. The great thing <laughs> in our universe is you can keep getting killed, and it doesn't mean you're not coming back to the party. Right. That's but what I keep that. telling them. I, I've pitched all these ideas, these wild <laughs> ideas. He was the chief of police. If you're going to cover something up, I mean. Yeah, yeah exactly. He's got the connections. Right. Yeah. 
I I mean, you know, it was it was it's basically canon that Stu survived supposedly Scream One, and I know in the original Scream Three script, he was supposed to be the mastermind behind all the the murders, and so and then you have Kirby surviving now in Scream Six, so I'm holding out the hope that Dewey isn't dead. You know, maybe I'm in denial. Maybe I, I don't know, but I I really think that uh, it's plausible for you to come back from a narrative standpoint. Um, they didn't technically show you dead; they only showed a body bag. So, yeah. yeah. What were some of your pitches to try to come back? Oh, that David Arquette comes back is uh, Dewey and Stab. oh yeah (laughs) so it's just a different but it's like (laughs) that would also be pretty great (laughs) that's an inspired casting in (laughs) staff but no that was uh david schwimmer played that role so (laughs) yeah (laughs) such a weird world yeah no there could have been like a recast some fake controversy (laughs) stab controversy yeah (laughs) um well uh, it's always been part of this meta film like there's all these worlds that they really could kind of like explore more i think in a you know with technology going where with deep fakes with all this kind of world that's because like even the the in Scream 4, the streaming, that idea, they made it all clunky with like some headpiece or something. But that was, I was one of the people behind the pitch of that, which was like that people are starting to document their world. So what if they, you know, it was kind of before streaming was like so um, readily available to people. So, yeah. So if you like think on terms of what's going to be big, you know, a year from now, two years from now, like they just said singularity is supposed to hit in seven years. I just saw it's like, what? Yeah. Singularity. It's like computers become smarter than us. I don't know. Jesus. I wonder if Gen X, we started before they were computers and we get to see them take over i know we got the whole spectrum we totally got the weird we got the weird the combo of all those sort of i know old and new we're like yeah it's weird it's i don't know i always think of it as like we're these computers yeah we're like these really the tabletop big old ibms and macs that they originally made the whole slow dial up and then these new kids are little handheld yeah. computers that this is super quantum computers. Than, yeah, yeah, yeah. It changed. Yeah, their speed, even like everything. It's also wild. It's times rapidly getting faster and faster. It really is. I, I went. Was there a year that Kurtzwheel pre- predicted the the singularity w- would happen, or is that? I think it slid a little bit. I think one time it was like 23 or 24, but it's a little later now, but it's been, yeah. Okay. That's just, well, I mean, that's crazy, but. I'm ready for UFOs. UFOs. Yes. (laughs) 
Me too. Yeah. Let's. Uh, at this point, I would just be like, okay, like I don't know. It be it feels like it would turn the world into like. Now the world is Burning Man. (laughs) 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 Like this big spaceship and it's just blasting the best music. Hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Why not? You guys have to chill. Yeah. Yeah. UFOs, the the final frontier. (laughs) Speaking of Westerns. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And speaking of Scream 4, you know, you've worked with Wes Craven more than I think most actors ever have maybe heather langenkamp uh, probably beats you out but what was it like to watch him work uh, i've always been a fan of his yeah he was amazing he was just such a kind generous guy knew exactly what he wanted had to, like everything sort of crossed and dotted and um was just really kind of got people like he he got me in a way that not a lot of uh sort of hollywood people do in a way you know what i mean that's also why i love indie movies there's something about um the crews and the the actors and the directors and the writers and the just the uh kind of family atmosphere of it but west sort of had that on a you know a big film scale and he was just, he was a professor, you know what I mean? Just yeah. like Jeff and, and just a teacher and, a, you know, a problem solver, a lover of art and music. And uh, it really came across and all the things. He also had his sort of eye out to a lot of different kind of, you know, anime and uh, Korean filmmaking and, and uh, all these sort of things that are, starting to catch on now but he was watching those like scream four i think i i saw him watching anime wow for uh it's it's that world. i mean shot. i think it makes those movies so interesting it is that world building and not just sticking to that genre i mean scream itself was a lot more different than everything else was out there when it came out i mean a lot of people have emulated some of those and it's become its own sort of genre of, of melding those but he was making something that was different than what other people were offering in horror it had a meta thing to it it had a strange commentary to it so it is i agree it's he's he wasn't in the narrow lane of that genre by any stretch yeah and i've looked back on screen three which was always my least favorite and then and then seeing one of the later um uh, nightmares that he did where it's behind the scenes thing there's something really cool that he was playing with in those worlds Oh, by yeah. having, you know, uh, Jay and Silent Bob, like it's just weird, like mashup worlds. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and Jeff, you, you dipped your toes in, in the horror and thriller genre. Was was Wes Craven uh, ever an influence you, for oh, you oh, at some sure. point? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, I. I don't watch a lot of horror and the horror I watch tends to be older. And by older, I I think I mean like mid nineties and back. So not old necessarily. Like, I mean, I do watch those, but not like, uh, you know, Lon Chaney old though. I watch those too, but old like nineties and back. And largely I think um, that Wes Craven era, that type of horror where 
a lot of, I mean, even, even watching something like Alien, watching movies where the horror is based uh, in a large part on conception, on these strange, how the, the morality of the world balances itself out. And some of the more modern horror, I think, has drifted towards um, just flat out terrifying you, grossing you out, putting putting people into impossible situations and then letting them play out in in ways that people like to say it's shocking or you can't unsee it or these kinds of things. And that's for a different audience than me. I don't, I don't really make films that I wouldn't want to watch. And I'm not, I don't know, in, in my given day, I don't necessarily need to sit for an hour and a half in a place I just want to get out of and watch horrible things happen to people. I, I enjoy the world of horror where the horror is talking about what it means to be an outsider in society, what it means to be repercussions of actions of these things set up. And I think Wes Craven certainly built that type of horror, um, which is a very different thing. I, I think the origins of horror as a genre weren't just to scare you. You know, the origins, if we go back and look at Frankenstein, if we look at Dracula, the origins were to say something about society. They had more they had more in common with the Twilight Zone, I think, than they do with some of the scare factor stuff we now get. And cinema is such a, an amazing medium that you can make some things that are really terrifying. But I'm just not sure that that's where I want to go. And it's certainly not what I'm looking to necessarily make. Uh, you know, the next the next film I'm trying to make possibly come this next fall is actually a, a horror film, uh, oh, wow. a werewolf western uh, that I'm nice. finished writing to shoot down in southern Spain. Speaking of where westerns made in that same town and actually in the, in the exact same set where Fistful of Dollars and stuff was made. But um, uh, if I get to make it, I mean, I want people to be a little scared, but it's also really going to be a lot about uh it's ideas about what it means going from Americans moving south of the border and kind of taking advantage of Mexico. It's going to be things about the way soldiers were treated in the Civil War. It's there's going to be things beyond is the werewolf scary if, if it works. So, yeah, I love that. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And then, of course, you know, Quantum Cowboys two possibly on the horizon as well. <laughs> I, I very much hope so. You know, I talked to Lily uh night before monday night monday night i talked to lily i, I should say text she's out at um uh sundance with her new film fancy dance which is getting oh, great right. yeah uh, you know, and she, of course got killers of the flower moon coming out later this year but um i think you know I, as long as we get to do this uh lily's going to come down to tucson with how and i uh and join us as a third writer um on the sequels i think which will be oh that's awesome so wow. uh, so it should be really really exciting and uh I do hope we get to make them. And, you know, the second one is all about, you know, David, it's about you and Frank. It's all how, how y'all got stuck. So uh -oh. Uh -oh. I, I hope we get to make it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Me too. Um, and, and, you know, David, if I, if I may be vulnerable here for a second, I, I did um, ketamine treatments last year um, and I'm still doing some more spaced out maintenance uh, I guess, infusions, um, at the yeah. that I go to, but it's really helped me. Uh, I've found, especially in combination with therapy, um, that's yeah. even your documentary really, really affected me. And I thought it was amazing to include because it helps destigmatize, you know, mental health issues. Um, and, and ketamine can, can help with so many different things. Um, what was it like showing that that side of you and, and filming that scene and including it in the DAW? It was kind of hard to include. My wife kind of kicked me out of the 
editing room at one point. <laughs> but um, we did put it in for that reason. And, you know, it was sort of pre-COVID uh, and everybody kind of like, oh, shit, we all have <laughs> anxiety and depression and, like, you know, aspects of it or just uncertainty and fear of the future. So, you know, uh, but yeah, I think it's important to talk about and, you know, it's not easy. Like the whole thing, it's no matter who, who knows what people are going through, but it's just uh, life in general. You just have to kind of like, you know, I, I've found the most helpful for me is, and it's hard to like keep it consistent, but is exercise and creativity, like doing yeah. something like physically creative or even cooking or whatever it is that you find joy and find like some activity that's just, you know, creative. And then exercise, if you can do that like five times a week, you're really can and get it's just helped my mental sort of well being. Likewise. Yeah. No, I, I run a lot and it, it sleep, you know. eating and sleeping really better, you know, sleeping better and eating better. That's those are the other ones. Right. And reading. <laughs> reading. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to read or even audio something yeah yeah um no that that's that's phenomenal thanks thanks for sharing that um and uh so i i think that going back to quantum cowboys you know i think jeff you mentioned that there's this lovability to such a a rough character rough around the edges at least but you know uh, David manages to, and I'm sure this was in the script, but infuse a lot of, of comedy into it. And I think that's why, you know, we liked character. Yeah. Uh, what were the initial conversations like? Um, you know, character archetypes, uh, inspirations, um, what you wanted to sort of convey, uh, be, you know, with, with, with David and, yeah. and David with Jeff. I mean, from the beginning, um, I, I don't really write villains, uh, you know, I, I don't feel like the world, maybe every once in a while it does, but short of someone who's just completely unhinged, villains are just someone who has prioritized their own, their own well-being, their own desires, their own goals over other people to a point that the rest of the world sees them as a villain. And I'm not saying that's not bad, but I think when a villain is just a bad guy it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make sense and it doesn't resonate that much in a real plot so you know these characters one of the reasons the sequel is about them so i wanted both frank and david though they are the quote-unquote bad guys of the movie they're not villains they're not just evil people that you know just want to destroy our our lead characters so i think in approaching it um it was a hard role, I think, for both of them, because I had to say, here you have a character and your character. I don't want it to be one dimensional. I don't want it to be just a bad guy that pulls a gun on them for no reason, which we sometimes see in Westerns. There's like the hired gun that terrorizes the city and you don't or the town and they don't really quite know why they terrorize the town. Why don't they just quit that job? Who knows? Mm -hmm. We didn't want that out of those characters. But I also had to tell them that in the scope of this script, we also don't ever show on the screen why you are how you are. So in a way, I was like. Frank and David, you have to the two of you have to go in and be the villains, be the antagonist, but do it 
in a way that's not just a cardboard villain, but we're also not going to reveal why you do what you do. So it was a big ask for those two actors. Um, and in casting, it was hard because I knew we had to get some people that could really do it. And uh, I love David's work and I knew Frank really well. So I kind of knew as like, I know Frank can can pull this off. I need to find the person that goes uh, with Frank. So largely in then the direction to the two of them is I wanted them to build that rapport. I, you know, I told them I want you to feel like the buddy heroes of your own film for the scenes that you're in here. And it's one of the things that was great with the scenes at the bar is it's a chance for them not to be out terrorizing Lily and John and Kiowa. It's a scene for them to just be having a drink and reminiscing a little bit on how they got stuck where they got stuck. And uh, I don't know, David, for you, if it helped or not, but I felt like those scenes really helped us see these two characters as genuinely friends. And Yeah, totally. It really did. There was elements of improv and moments of just sort of discovering it. We we didn't know that there was, you know, there was kind of a feeling of a hierarchy, like, but it kind of developed yeah. and made Frank be the sort of loose cannon, you know, and uh, yeah, it all just kind of organically happened. I think that happens a lot when you do cast where people's chemistry works. And, and y'all really did. I mean, I love there's a moment in the campfire scene where David, um, when the mask man, I, I will try not to give things away for people who might watch this before yeah. they watch the movie, but when the mask man pulls the gun on David's character on Colfax. And um, I think that's when you really get to see that that character of Colfax that David plays still has a foot in sanity that Frank's character Depew doesn't. You know, when you're like, just kill us, just that's what I would do. You're just there's a side where instead of fighting for himself, he's like that moment of sympathy. Like y'all are stuck in this stupid loop as well. Like I get it. I get how hard this is on you all as well. And I love the rapport you get with John who plays Bruno. The two of you are talking and he brings you the blanket and it, though you're on opposite sides, you're, you're opponents of one another. There's this great way in which neither of the two of you is particularly aggressive towards the other one. You both realize you're stuck in the same trap. And I think I love that about David's portrayal of this character, because we really get a character that says he's problematic, he's unhinged, but he's still got a foot in a world where he, even more than Bruno, I think at that point we realize Colfax's character kind of sees what's going on and you have a better perspective on what Bruno's doing than even he does. And I, I thought you did that that really well and at the same time got a laugh so again uh you know, david walked that line of of being kind of this wise old character who's also like your plan's stupid and you're right his plan is stupid like you're you're calling him out on exactly what's wrong because you see the bigger picture in there and um i don't even know how well i communicated that to david and frank when they were doing it but they delivered so yeah uh, sorry go go ahead no no go for it yeah, speaking of you know that scene with Bruno, I love when he brings in the whiskey, and you just tell him with your face without saying like, "Well, my hands are tied up. How am I supposed to drink this?" Like, <laughs> I got a big <laughs> laugh out of that. Uh, cool. John he- Wayne's amazing actor. He's really talented. I'm excited to see what he does in the future. Yeah, me too. He really, I, and and that scene particularly too. I mean, I. For me, that whole the campfire scene is the longest scene in the movie, and it's still my favorite. Um, all of you know, all five of the principals are in that sequence, and you all are so so good off of one another as that thing 
plays out. I, I love that sequence. So, yeah, David, if you did get the call from from Matt and Tyler or whoever takes the next reins of, of the Scream franchise, would you can would you consider returning? Absolutely, would be <laughs> amazing. I love playing that character. Just being part of those films, I would be a director's assistant. <laughs> <laughs> It's something about being part of the experience that's pretty amazing. That's that's awesome. Yeah, I I could imagine it. Uh, it seems like everyone became so close throughout those those movies and genuinely yeah. liked each other. <laughs> um, and uh, what what's next for the both of you? Um, I guess starting with David, I know you've got Hop Pink with the incomparable Elizabeth Holm, um, and you're reuniting with Sarah Michelle Geller, even though you didn't share. Yeah, that actually that was a pilot that didn't get picked up, so that oh, one okay. Anywhere. But I did yeah. do a film called um, I mean, I, I have a series coming out called Mrs. Davis. Oh, okay, Mrs. Which Davis. Is pretty interesting, but it's pretty like they haven't shared much about it, so I think. They want to surprise the the world with it. <laughs> it should be out in March. It's on Peacock. Got it. And and Jeff, um, I know you've you've mentioned your next film. Um, do you have do you have anything else? Yeah, uh, I've I've kept quite a few irons going. So um, I'll give a shout out to some fun collaborators. But um, uh, Izzy Schill's film Going Nowhere. I play. It's an ensemble cast. But I play one of the leads in that. So I've got a film as an actor. Um, I just got a message from her saying they got picked up, but I don't know the details. So I can't tell you when it's coming out, but it's called Going Nowhere. And I get to play a charming loser. So that's right up my wheelhouse. Uh, so I got one film coming out as an actor. Um, I just, I'm going to be, I produced a film for Skinner Myers uh, called Before You Fade Away Into Nothing. It's a low budget 35 millimeter piece starring uh, Skinner and Nikon. And uh, I produced it. I'm also doing all the color correct and the visual effects on it now. But we dragged 35 millimeter cameras up to 13,000 feet in the mountains and shot all on black and white and did it on essentially no budget. It's a great film. I think we're premiering in Europe this summer, probably. Mm -hmm. I think that's a likelihood. So that'll come out. And then uh, I'm finishing up the two scripts for the sequels of this and hopefully shooting a werewolf film in the fall. That's that's probably my next three things queued up unless unless something sneaks in and changes that but yeah that's awesome oh yeah i love i love to hear that i love to uh it's you know almost wore the same shirt to this <laughs> i know exactly yeah. <laughs> but, i, I could have cracked out a clown t-shirt to put on under this and i would have been like the nexus of you too yeah yeah <laughs> um well guys thank you so much for your time yeah, thank you and um, your your answers um yeah it was great speaking with both of you really too. fun and thanks thanks for the support you know it's this is a low budget films are always hard to get out there in the world um and i think getting harder every year with the amount of competition there is the number of films so every time we get coverage certainly appreciate it because i do think when this finds its right audiences they really love it and i just have to convince people to to get in the theater so hopefully i'll see some people at the roxy on the fifth or sixth it's fifth or sixth i should know yeah. monday. it's coming up it's monday the fifth or sixth of february we're playing so amazing and the roxy's such a great theater it's going to be amazing yeah um well best of luck with uh 
you know, the rest of the press junket and the premiere and all your future projects. Um, and uh, thanks again for joining me on on this uh, this podcast. And thanks for having us. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having us. Of course, guys. Uh, take care. All right. Bye. That's <laughs> <minutes>, David. <laughs> Bye. And that's a wrap, ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary people. Uh, thanks for listening to Shattering Superstructure. This was a great episode with uh, Jeff Marslett and David Arquette. And uh, keep an eye out for uh, upcoming episodes in the next couple weeks. We've got Omid Arabian. Yeah, he shares the same last name as me. He's a published author who translates uh, the poet Rumi from Farsi to English um, in a much more accurate way. And he has uh, actually a center called Universal in L.A. that teaches Rumi and mysticism to both children and adults. And then we have Sev Ohanian, who is a prominent producer, and we talk about his career and how he broke into the industry and his already legendary filmography. So his latest film coming out is Missing, uh, which is um, the sequel to Searching, and... Uh, he has an upcoming documentary, which he produced, about Steph Curry. Yes. Uh, go Warriors. And we shall see you next time. This is Alex signing off. Yeah.